Thanks. Jacob's in great fear and he's in distress. We'd probably say he was stressed to the max in modern day language. It's dark, he's alone, he's tired. And what's more, his mind is restless. Jacob's, of course, thinking about his estranged brother, Esau, that he's gunning for him. And what's more, with 400 men, and that's a small army. Jacob has literally got everything on the line, hasn't he? If you think it through, everything's exposed. His wives, his children, his servants, all his possessions and indeed his own life. And he's expecting trouble and potentially his death. He's constantly remembering that last communication he had with Esau or heard about from Esau that it was a death hit on him. So it's a dawning scenario that's facing Jacob today. And he's thinking of a possible way out. He's always been really self-reliant. Surely, he thinks to himself, he can come up with something. He's plotted, as, as Wendy read, he's plotted uh, two camps to split himself into two camps. Perhaps he can save something through the mess that's, that's going to come. And he's even gone down to the planning of what his family's going to say. And he's also thinking that God has specifically asked him, commanded him, to return home. And he's obeying that command. And what's more, now he's praying to God to be spared by his brother. And wait, now there's an intruder. What is going on? Well, today we're examining one of the most pertinent accounts of Old Testament scripture. God is wrestling with Jacob and Jacob's subsequent transformation and change and also his reconciliation with his brother Esau. And we can see from our readings that God reveals himself, that God brings people into relationship with himself and indeed with others and that God is Uh, faithful and fulfils his promises. But before we get to the wrestling account, let's let's just do a review of the context. As as James highlighted last week, Jacob's deceived and schemed his way. He's got Esau's birthright, you might recall, and also his father's primary blessing. And accordingly, Esau hated Jacob for that and he sought revenge. Jacob's returning home, as we said, in obedience to to God's command after working for Laban. And he is growing, Jacob has grown in possessions and family. And the first part of Genesis 32 that, that Wendy read for us reveals the plans that Jacob has put into place in preparation for meeting his long estranged brother. Verses 3 to 5, of course, which, which we read, describe how Jacob sends out his messages off ahead of him and across the land of Sur in the, in the country of Edom. And they're very, very well instructed. They're ready to roll with the instructions that, that uh, Jacob has given them. And there's details about the livestock, but specifically the intent for Jacob to find favour in Esau's eyes. 
But the messengers don't come back with very good news, do they, for, for uh, Jacob? Uh, verse 6 tells us that Esau is on his way, he's coming, but he's coming with 400 men. And verse 7 tells us the state that Jacob's in. It's one of great fear and distress and we shouldn't underestimate uh, the gravity of that. It is great fear and distress. And hence he does his organisation of the two groups. And, and as, as we read in verse 8, Esau's hoping that at least some of his, his, his flock and his people may possibly be able to be escape uh, if Esau attacks. But then Jacob prays, doesn't he? In verses 9 to 12, Jacob prays. And there's clearly now humility in Jacob and his prayer is straightforward and its structure, I think, in particular is really helpful for us. It's really noteworthy. First, Jacob prays to God, declaring who God is. The God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and he recounts God's command to him that Jacob is to return home. And Jacob also recounts that he is actually obeying this command. Jacob highlights the promise of God to him, specifically that he would prosper, that God would make him prosper. Second, in verse 10, Jacob confesses that he is unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that God has shown on him. And he's also counting the blessings, his blessings, so to speak, isn't he? He's acknowledging God's mercy as well upon him. And then thirdly, in verses 11 and 12, Jacob makes known his requests to God. He prays specifically for deliverance from Esau and links that into God's actual reasons, God's divine promise and plan. He's holding on to God's promises. Now, if you think about that, that's a a pretty sound model for prayer, isn't it? If we, firstly, one, to praise God for who he is, his character, uh, who who he actually is, our love for God and his precepts, his commands and his ways. And secondly, we're to confess that we are unworthy and praise and thank God for his countless mercies to us and to be grateful for the many blessings that, that he gives, he bestows upon us. I think in contemporary Australia we... We often take so much for granted, don't we? We really do take a lot of the things in our life as pretty much as the norm. But we really should be thankful and grateful. And thirdly, we are to make known our request to God and with awareness of God's promises. By the way, after the prayer, Jacob still continues with his preparations. There's still some doubt in Jacob and we can see that in, in some of the things that he does. Um, he does obviously display faith in returning home, but he's, he's still trying to work things a bit out for himself and there's doubt. Verse 20 in scripture highlights that to us, where it says that Jacob is, is, is thinking in his mind, I will pacify Esau with these gifts that I'm sending on ahead. So he's sending on a lot of gifts that are for him. And then later when I see him, Perhaps he, that is Esau, will receive me. It's a perhaps. So he's, he's got doubt there. And the reality is we often pray and have those, those doubts too, don't we? Sadly, it's probably too often. But that's all going to change now because God's on the scene. God is coming directly in a most confronting and indeed transforming way. Verse 24 records 
So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now the first thing to note there is that the man, um, who we later find out is God, initiates the wrestle. God initiates the wrestle. That is, he seeks out, he pursues Jacob. And during this struggle with the man, the man could not overcome Jacob in the wrestling. The wrestling, so to speak, sat at a, a stalemate. And it's now approaching daylight. The man, of course, touches Jacob's hip socket, which, which scripture says wrenches, wrenches his hip and disables him. Jacob holds on in order to seek a blessing from the man. And Jacob's name is is subsequently changed by the man and we'll go into a bit of detail on this in a moment in verse 28. And it's changed from Jacob, which, which James said last week, which means supplanter, to Israel, which means to struggle with God. So the struggle, the wrestle, is a real physical event. And it's also emblematic, if we think about it, of Jacob's life, isn't it? Jacob has struggled, as as James explained last week, with his brother and with his father. And then subsequently he struggled with his his father-in-law Laban. And ultimately he's really struggling with himself and God. Jacob had lived his life, hadn't he? Through his own ability, in order to obtain the blessing But in this wrestling with God, Jacob is really desperate, truly desperate. If you think about it, when his hip is touched and it's damaged and it's permanently damaged, he can't physically defend himself now against Esau. In fact, he can't even run away, so he's totally exposed. There's no kind of trick out there now. There's no self-reliance that Jacob can do. He's now not only defeated with the hip because of uh, the... Re- he's not only defeated as in the wrestling match, so to speak, but there's just no escape position for Jacob. But simultaneously, it's really relevant to note that J- Jacob now knows upon that touch with whom he's wrestling. He knows it's God that he's wrestling because that simple touch has disabled him it's, and he sees that supernatural power. He understands that it's by God's, by God's mercy that he's not killed in that wrestle. And it's really helpful here to just briefly touch on Hosea 12, Hosea 12.4. It gives us a bit more information, uh, albeit brief, about the encounter. Hosea records Jacob's sheer desperation. We often think of Jacob hanging on there, and it truly is with grit and determination, but it's also, as Hosea tells us, with absolute weeping and begging for God's favour. Hosea 12.4 says that. Jacob's finished and broken. He's both physically, he's broken, and also in his self-reliance. And he now hangs on to purely the Lord. In verse 26 of Genesis 32, it says, Jacob actually says, I will not let you go, this is to, to God, the man, unless you bless me. Jacob is now fully trusting God, isn't he? He's fully, he's fully dependent on God. There's no, nothing else that can come into play here. It reminds me of Hebrews 11.6, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
The way Jacob's prevailed in this struggle, in this struggle with God, is by knowing that he's unable to defeat God. And he surrenders, that is, and submits to God. In effect, the blessing he's got is surrendering to God. And the blessing that he's got could not be more stark, could it? Could not be more stark in contrast to how he's previously attempted to work his way to obtain it. So God wrestles with Jacob and Jacob ends up hanging on and is then blessed by God. And in verse 30, Jacob actually names the place where this wrestle occurs, Peniel, because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. So the man in the account is obviously God. It's a theophany, if you want to use that term, or a a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And it's a bit like what Abraham experienced, and I think James touched on that earlier with Genesis 18. And God wrestles with us, doesn't he? One obvious and primary way, and we actually touched on it in one of the, the songs today, is through scripture. And scripture should challenge and confront us, as well as give us great peace and hope. But God wrestles with us in scripture, because he seeks for us to focus on him. Do we understand God and his ways? Are we living our life for him? When Desi and I were in the, the US, we had a, a lovely, uh, godly man and a, an outstanding um, a teacher. And he would often exhort the students by just saying so often of the essential need to wrestle with the text he would, he would almost say that that's, he commanded almost, you've got to wrestle with the text because such wrestling is, how, is, really, is really to how to understand more about God and who he is and to, I suppose we could say, plumb the depths, try to plumb the depths of God's riches. So that requires you to think, to work, to be in relationship. But sadly, too often we skim over the surface, don't we? We can, we can read a text and kind of just flick through it and really not study it or really not soak it in and certainly not wrestle with it. But it is in that wrestling with scripture that we can truly know God. God's wrestling may also occur through obviously prayer, uh, the use of our times, our priorities and indeed our money. And poignantly God wrestles with us in our relationships. God uses relationships including those here in our church to help change and mature us, to help transform us and indeed others into Christ-likeness for his glory. It's all too easy though, isn't it, to just kind of ignore or if it's going a bit tough with certain relationships, to just kind of avoid those relationships. It might be too confronting or the person's maybe too different. It's all too hard kind of thing. But the problem is with that is that's the way of the world. That's not the Christ-like way. We're commanded to be serious, for example, about rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep, in Romans 12.15, or to encourage each other, daily indeed, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's Hebrews 3. And God meets you and me, like Jacob, and this can include 
when we are alone, when we are in anguish, when we are in anxiety, uncertainty or indeed in fear. But also remember he may not necessarily meet you in the ways that you and I expect or even perhaps desire. The reality is that this wrestling, this struggle brings blessing. There is reconciliation and comfort with God, but too often it's in unexpected ways. Blessing can come, but it involves hardship. In Jacob's case, obviously Jacob had a permanently busted hip, but it did lead him to peace with God. So the issue is, do we, do we wrestle? Do I, do you? Do we wrestle and do we hang on to God like Jacob did? The reality is, do you, do I, live our lives relying on God or on our own plans and ways? Because the truth is, if you really think about it, it ultimately goes down to we all hang our lives onto something. We either hang it on to God at the end of the day or on our own way. And our own way, which we can see pretty obviously, obviously around, around us in our society, might be career, it might be money, it might be materialism, it might be uh, social media status, uh, it might be the escapism of entertainment, might be alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it is, the list just goes on and on. Let us, though, be characterised by trusting, by clinging, by having faith in God and his ways. Now let's look at the change in name from Jacob to Israel. As we touched on in verse 27, Jacob's hip is wrenched and the God-man expressly asked Jacob his name. Now that's really confronting, remembering uh, who or what, uh, who Jacob is and what his name means. So Jacob, let's be honest, the con man, the deceiver, the hill grabber, the twister of the truth, he's exposed now. And will he lie or will he tell the truth? Crucially, he does tell the truth. He tells God that his name is Jacob. In effect, given that name, that, that, that name expressed his character, his destiny, uh, and, and basically they were all interlinked. So Jacob's coming along and admitting to God and he's actually saying, I am the supplanter. And of course God responds in verse 28 with that you shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel for you have struggled or persevered with God and with humans and have prevailed. Again, the prevailing there relates to the struggle of Jacob and importantly, the struggle could not be won in his own effort. So the blessing is not something you can secure by your own effort but rather it is given to you by God. So Jacob's his birth name, his old nature, Israel is his new name, his God-appointed name, reflecting his new birth, his new nature. It's a new name reflecting his new character. Jacob represents selfishness contrasted to Israel, who is learning to trust God. The contrast couldn't be starker, could it? And that's not just for Jacob, but it's also for all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who has no sin, Jesus, 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the burden of Jacob is now lifted and as we approach his meeting with Esau, we can see that he is truly a changed man. And his faith, his trust in God, brings changed actions. He's now free, free to approach Esau, but with a physical limp. So there's cost there, isn't there? Such transformation may cost us. James touched on it last week, possibly it might be in Korea, or it might be in our perceived standing in community, or it might be in our time of priorities. Whatever it is, the key is that it leads us away from sin, trusting in God, and obviously to God. Robert Alder uh, puts it in, in this way, Jacob, whose name can be constructed as he who acts crookedly, is bent by the damage to his hip in order to be made straight before his reunion with Esau. And like Jacob, the the nation of Israel likewise, over its history, struggles and contends with God through a a chequered history, obviously. Israel needs, or seeks to be, I should say, seeks to be righteous in their own strength, but can never achieve it. And they go through their ups and their downs. But it's only through Jesus, who is the true Israel, and his sacrifice, that the people of God are made righteous and that the fulfilment of the promise occurs, that all in him will be blessed. And the third area I just want to look at briefly is the reconciliation of relationships. As we said, Jacob is changed by his encounter with God. We see in, in, in Genesis uh, 33 that, that his faith now guides his actions. We didn't read it, but in his detailed planning, Jacob was planning prior to his encounter with God to be up the back, to put everyone else in front of him, to try to appease uh, Esau and that he would be at the rear, the last effectively. But now that he has changed and he's trusting in God, he sets out in front of his family and servants and possessions to meet Esau. And Genesis 33 is a really relevant chapter about God, his fulfilment of the promises, the relationship reconciliation, and that God's plan is being fulfilled. So Jacob, now called Israel, is returning to the land that will lead to his descendants. And of course Jacob's prayer has also been answered as well. And for this to occur, Jacob is to reconcile with Esau. But further and practically, there's wonderful principles in this chapter for reconciliation and it helps us to go about reconciliation because the fact of the matter is we live in a world of broken relationships and it is confronting, it's highly complex and it's really difficult. And I think we have to be honest with the reality uh, of what is around us and, and strained relationships and the fact that it includes me and you. It includes all of us. And it might be in our homes, our family, our friends, our workplaces, uh, where we socially interact and, dare I say, also in churches. But as Jesus' disciples, we're obviously to love people, we're to be peacemakers 
and we should be proactive in helping in reconciliation of relationships. And getting really practical and personal, the truth is that we've all encountered those relationship difficulties and we all likely have some kind of relationship that at the very least we we need to markedly improve, if not indeed restore. So how do we go about that? Well, just a few quick principles from the account of Jacob in Genesis 33. First one is, actually in Genesis 32, 32, 11, Jacob, which we did, Jacob prays. Jacob prayed to be safe from his brother, but he sought reconciliation. And reconciliation really starts with being reconciled with God. The important fact is that our relationship with others and our relationship with God are interconnected. So it's essential that we pray to understand and seek also the wisdom from God of how to restore relationships. If we jump briefly into uh, chapter 33, just a few principles that Jacob does. He puts away his pride, doesn't he? In Genesis 33, 1-4, he's humble and he displays that, obviously, in that culture by bowing seven times in respect for his brother. But he took the initiative, didn't he? As I said, he came to the front uh, and God had given him, he had, he had the trust and faith in God and so he had the courage to literally front his brother. So that's a lesson for us too, isn't it? It's a principle. We need to be intentional and upfront about reconciling. And we have to be humble, and that's a really big step. And we need to ask for God's help to remove any pride that might, might be blocking us. But further in Genesis, Genesis 33, 5-11, we see that, that Jacob's genuine, don't we? He specifically acknowledges God's provision rather than his own making with regard to his family and his, and his flocks and his, and his herd. Jacob was a, was a schemer, as, as we heard about last week, and he was always trying to get more. That's basically how he was characterised. But now the contrast couldn't be starker again. He's generous, incredibly generous with those gifts that he's giving to his brother. Some uh, commentators have tried to give a modern day price on that. and It wasn't like a few thousand dollars. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars that he was giving his brother. He's also kind. He's also respectful and he's submissive and very, it's really interesting his words that he uses. The words that he uses and how he refers to his brother all reflect a humility and a respect. And that's a really good example for us to do likewise, isn't it? But the ultimate thing is we are to always remember the extent to which we are forgiven by God for our sins. I think Romans 5, 9 to 11 explains it so beautifully that we are justified by his blood, saved from God's wrath for him, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son on the cross. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We receive reconciliation through Jesus Christ. It's also interesting, just just by the way, that Esau's a very different man in that story too. He's gone from seeking revenge to also seeking reconciliation. In verse 4, Wendy read that he runs to Jacob to embrace him and, and kiss him. We don't actually have the direct information for Esau's change, but I think it would be very fair to suggest that God is also working in some way in his life. Proverbs 16.7 may be applying here. That proverb states, when the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's ways, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. 
So, in summary, Sovereign God is working his plan and fulfilling his promise. promise. And the prayer of Jacob obviously has been answered too. Jacob has obeyed God, he's been faithful and he's also been humbled and transformed by God. He's put his trust in God. God has seen to it that Jacob returns and to the homeland and that the promise to Abraham and Isaac, right back to Genesis 12, is going to be fulfilled. And this culmination in Genesis 33 ends with Jacob, who's now called Israel, having purchased land at Shechem in Canaan. He's now into the promised land. And relevantly that recalls, doesn't it, where Abraham earlier in in Genesis had, had arrived in Canaan as well, in Genesis 12. But pertinently, Jacob now Israel sets up an altar in worship of God. And he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means the God of Israel is God. Jacob affirms that God, the Almighty One, is the God of Israel. So, we are to do likewise and worship him. Indeed, uh, may our lives in all that we do uh, be a living sacrifice, um, as as we sang about today, that we will be a living temple and holy and pleasing to God. And may we, like like Jacob, cling to God and at all times also cling to his promises. Amen. Our final hymn is uh, 416, The Covenant God, the one that we have been learning. So hymn number 416. Covenant Father, I should say. Let's stand together and sing.